morning. It is Saturday, September 10th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, welcome to the show. It's uh, obviously a very eventful week, especially for those of you like yourself in London. How is the mood over there? Well, we're recording this on Friday morning. It's about 11 o'clock here in London. And I will say the city feels different today. It's very somber. It was very somber last night when the news of the Queen's death broke. The streets got very quiet. I live here in Kensington, not terribly far from the palace. And you could just feel the mood shifting and the energy changed. And then clearly the preparations have been in store for this moment for quite some time because I woke up this morning and all of the many of the billboards around town have already been changed to reflect images of the Queen. The advertisements at bus stops have been switched over to show the dates of her birth and death and her reign and some incredible portraiture of her. So London is awash in imagery and memories right now. And this morning after I dropped my children at school, I walked to Buckingham Palace and I walked by the palace gates where people were streaming out of Green Park to pay their respects. I think many of the floors in London are probably sold out right now because it seems like every bouquet of lilies imaginable is wedged into those gates at Buckingham Palace. But it was a very moving scene. The magnitude of the loss is tremendous. And you're really seeing how deeply she was beloved by every segment of society. It's quite impressive and very moving and a moment I certainly will never forget. I'm sure it's all I was just struck yesterday when I heard the news. It just made me realize like her reign was so long and yet her going was so swift. It was so brief, her exit, and left me sort of speechless and a little teary-eyed, I will confess. Well, we've got a number of guests on this week who can talk about the Queen. We have Anna Scott Carter, we have George Pendle, and we also have Jamie Kirchick joining us. It's going to be a great show. Yes, indeed. A lot to talk about. Well, let's start with a memory of the Queen, because I think in many ways, there's so much analysis to be read about her and how consequential she was as a monarch. But I think so many people are touched by her humanity as a person. And we have Anna Scott Carter here, who is the CEO of Electrogram, a fabulous new digital stationary service that you should check out. She's also the wife of our founder, Graydon Carter. And Anna has an incredible story about a brief moment she shared with the Queen, and she will tell us all about it. All right. Welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I think we've all been struck by the personal stories that people have had with the Queen. And you have had a most memorable interaction with her that happened when you were a young girl. So first of all, take us back to that time in your life. Your father was working for the Queen, correct? Yes, that's right. Yes. I mean, I should preface all of this by saying I am certainly not a royal expert in any sense, but I did have this extraordinarily privileged time when my father was working as the Queen's, initially her assistant private secretary and then her Deputy Private Secretary for 10 years from 1985 to 1995, which was just an amazing period of being able to meet many members of the royal family, but especially the Queen was a real privilege. What did you hear about her as a young girl? What did she mean to you? What was sort of... Well, I think it was very emotional for most British people yesterday when she died because she became Queen in 1952. So most people who are alive today remember her as the Queen of England. She reigned for an exceptionally long time, having been crowned in 1952, so 70 years. I'm so glad she was able to celebrate her jubilee this year and to see how loved she was by people not just in the UK, but all around the world. Well, I want to hear the story, Anna, about your brief encounter with the Queen. 
Sure. When my father initially went to work for her, he was given a grace and favor apartment in St. James's Palace. And he would walk every day to work at Buckingham Palace. But before his job started, after he'd been interviewed and offered the job, we were invited to go to Balmoral in the summer of 1985. And we traveled up there on the overnight train from London and arrived obviously early in the morning at the side door of Balmoral, where we were due to meet one of the other private secretaries, Robert Fellows, who was going to show us where we were staying on the estate. And just as we had arrived and were chatting with Robert at the side entrance, we suddenly heard a sort of clip-clop, clip-clop behind us. And there we were with our suitcases rather disheveled after an overnight train ride with not much sleep. And we turned around and there was the queen on her horse coming back from her morning ride. And she (laughs) smiled down at us and greeted us very warmly. There she was so elegant. She was riding side saddle with her headscarf on in the sort of typical Scottish drizzle. And I was (laughs) in my jeans and a sweater and having practiced and practiced my curtsies, I found myself curtsying to her for the first time in my jeans while she was on horseback. So that was a... An unexpected moment. Anna, you might be one of the few people we've spoke to has been to Balmoral, where the Queen died yesterday. What's it like there? It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And it was really the place where the royal family, my father at least told me that the royal family felt most relaxed, especially the Queen. And they would go up in, you typically they would go up in August and stay, the Queen would go up in August with Prince Philip and stay until early October. And they just loved it. She would go riding every morning. They would have these wonderful picnics that they would organize and take various kind of bemused prime ministers off to a picnic in a wooden cabin in the hills on the estate and they would drive out to the cabin and behind the Range Rover that they would be a series of Range Rovers and behind one of them was a trailer that had been designed especially by Prince Philip which was fantastic it had a massive barbecue on the top and then it had these drawers for the china and the silver and a fridge for the meat all sort of designed into this trailer and they'd arrive at the cabin and then typically it would be Prince Philip who would cook and then after the barbecue and the picnic everybody would wash up and my brother found himself doing the drying up next to the queen who was washing up and then everything would get packed back into the trailer and the Range Rovers and they would go back to the castle. It was really relaxed and very charming. And I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to this question. Is your father still with us? No, sadly, he died four years ago. And he had such happy memories of his time working with the Queen. She had a wonderful sense of humor. And actually, he wrote a piece for Graydon in, in Vanity Fair before he died about the experience of working with the Queen. And he had a couple of wonderful stories about how she would love to go while she was up at Balmoral. She would sometimes drop into the shops in the local town, which was called Balata. And and so two wonderful occasions he remembered. One was when somebody in a shop said to her, you look just like the queen. And she said, how very reassuring. And then another time when somebody asked her if she'd ever met the queen, because obviously she was in Balata and they didn't realize who she was. So she pointed it to her bodyguard and said, well, he has. <laughs> what a sense of humor. Yeah, she apparently had a wonderful sense of humor. And yes, I mean, my father really adored her and loved his 
time working with her. We have a very busy 10 days ahead of us as the UK it goes through its period of mourning. Anna, what are you looking out for, if anything? What's top of mind for you as you watch all of these processionals unfold? Well, I just think the royal family and the amazing staff that support them do it like nobody else. I mean, there will be amazing ceremonies. It'll be very emotional and they will send her off in style. That's for sure. Thank you so much. Michael, do you have any other questions for Anna? No, I feel so privileged to have had these memories shared because I just was also thinking like for all your practicing of the curtsy, like what better way? It's just like getting thrown off the deep end of the pier. Just like you imagine one thing else and like, no, you've got to do your curtsy right now in your jeans and your barber and just go. Just a way to get it over with, right? <laughs> yes. You need to do it in whatever the circumstances present you. You curtsy. And my father would remember he would accompany her on many tours around the country, around the UK, but also on state visits around the world. He said it was so funny. People would understand me. She never forgot she was the queen. She had extraordinary presence and was very regal while also being warm. And he said that people would become very flustered when they met her. And there was more than one occasion when if she was meeting a man, the man had watched his wife curtsying, practicing curtsying so many times that when he actually came to meet the queen, he curtsied too. (laughs) (laughs) She handled everything with great aplomb, always. Well, Anna, thank you so much for sharing these incredible stories from your life and your family's life with us. Well, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to talk to you this morning and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Anna. What a great story. Great story. I love when hearing these incredibly personal memories of people's interactions with former queen. It's extremely special. Well, in many ways, she was a queen of few words and a queen of many images. And we have George Pendle here to talk about her relationship with Cecil Beaton, who photographed her from the early 1940s through the late 1960s. As a princess, a queen, and a mother, he was instrumental in creating the image of Elizabeth that we know today. But George is the author of several books, and he's a contributor to Airmail as well as many other publications. We're happy to have him here. Welcome, George. All right, George, so you were up into the wee hours of the night preparing this wonderful story about Cecil Beaton and his relationship to the Queen. Why did you decide to focus on this particular angle as a way of paying tribute to her legacy? Well, I think there was something about the pictures that Cecil Beaton took of her that really shaped the way we see the Queen today and really explain why so many people are feeling sad in the wake of her death. Beaton kind of created this image of the Queen as a kind of constant presence, as not so much a celebrity, that's kind of the wrong word for it. There's something kind of glittering and finite about celebrity. But she was more of this kind of natural feature. And I think kind of Beaton put that in the public mind. Even though he was renowned for being a high fashion photographer, he created something that was almost the opposite of that. She was this kind of edifice, this kind of mountain. And I think some people are surprised by their feelings at her death because you don't expect mountains to disappear. And so that was the kind of angle, I thought, really kind of showed something about how we perceive the Queen, and particularly people in England, how they perceive the Queen. It's almost not so much a personality as this kind of omnipresence that was everywhere in the country for the last 70 years. If you think about it, the Queen is it's been calculated, but she's her image is the most replicated in human history, even more so than Jesus Christ. She's on billions of banknotes and coins and stamps throughout 35 countries. But it wasn't this kind of aggressively in-your-face presence. It was just a kind of underlining presence, somebody that was just always out of the corner of your eye. And I think Cecil Beaton's pictures kind of started that, that image of her. George, one of the things, I mean, when you talk about Beaton being obviously had a career as a high fashion photographer, and yet I think when you and I have spoken, what's 
so fascinating is the queen is she has this eternal style she doesn't really have any style in these photographs and in her public image and which almost goes against what people think a queen should be the regalia and all this and yet her style was almost it never shouted right that's right it was almost an anti-style and i think mentioned this in the piece but hardy amos who was the queen's dressmaker for a long time said that she always thought there was something cold and cruel about chic clothes. And you can see that because chic clothes kind of put you apart from people. They make you higher up. They kind of give you a separation from people. Whereas the Queen didn't want that. She wanted, although she was definitely in the mind, she lived in a palace, she was very wealthy, but she didn't want that kind of separation between people. And Beaton, who for so long had photographed Maria Callas or Audrey Hepburn and, and showed them as these kind of otherworldly figures, he had to do the opposite for the queen and kind of show her not as somebody who was chic, but as somebody who was familiar and kind, somebody who wasn't separate from the rest of the country. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost, as you mentioned, with Callis and Hepburn, he's elevating these common people to royalty, a pop culture royalty, and yet he's then taking this true royal and sort of bringing her down a little bit, if that's the phrase for it. I think that's right. I mentioned that Beaton first photographed her and her family in the wake of the abdication crisis with Edward VII and Wallace Simpson. And it's hard not to see a kind of reaction against the high fashion and the fashionability of Wallace Simpson, who was portrayed in these fine French fashions. The royal family, I think, was tottering at that point in the 1930s and 1940s. And I think Beaton allowed them to create a whole new image that wasn't fashionable, but was somehow lasting. Fashion comes and goes, but there's something about the royal family's style that was timeless. They were uncommon and yet common in that touch then. Right. It's been very interesting the last 24 hours, if you go on Twitter. You'll see people saying how sad they are at the Queen's death. You'll see people joking about the Queen's death, and you'll have other people saying they don't care that the monarchy, they're saying it's an antiquated institution. I mean, what's interesting is that people who are saying they don't care about the monarchy are not really complaining about her as a person. They're not saying she was an awful person. They're not attacking her character. They're saying they don't agree with the job that she had. And I think in this day and age, it's incredible. You can think that there shouldn't be a queen, but you don't think someone else should have been the queen instead of her. You can criticize the monarchy, but criticizing her is like trying to climb a, a marble facade. There's no finger holes to grab onto. And really, I think that's kind of her triumph and one which Beaton was kind of integral in creating. When you think her lifetime coincided with mass media, uh, international celebrity, and a knowledge of the famous like never before, we know very little about the queen. We're still fond of her. She has never been partisan. She's never really had a public opinion that was in any way controversial. And her discretion is this kind of superhuman quality that she had. I mean, in an age of celebrity and personalities, she defied that. She was this very wealthy person who lived in palaces and she had the biggest public platform in the world after the Pope. <laughs> but she didn't really put a foot wrong calling Elon Musk. It's just strange that you can have a person who's so beloved yet ultimately kind of so unknown in the 70 years of her reign. I mean, I'm trying to, people kind of projected their own beliefs onto her or their own beliefs in what Great Britain was or what the United Kingdom was. But when you try and think about what her personality was, it's very hard to do. I don't know if I could write more than a page on her personality. All I know is she loved horse racing. I really believe that that's her trial. And corgis. Well, and corgis, that's true. That's the second line. But it kind of shows this incredible sense of public surface and self-mastery, which I think is remarkably rare in this day and age. And I think there's something about the mourning for her that mourns that because it's very hard to see anybody else in history and future times doing that again. George, 
Do you think that King Charles, it sounds odd to say that, but here we are. Do you think that King Charles will have a Cecil Beaton of his own or does he even need one? Well, it's interesting. The thing about Charles is we already know so much about him. His character has already been shaped by 70 years he's been in the public eye, more so than the Queen. I think the, the interesting thing about Cecil Beaton was he was right there when the Queen was a teenager, photographing her, shaping the narrative. Whereas Charles, as the Queen's son, was kind of already shaped by the tabloids and by public opinion. So I think it's going to be very hard for anybody to kind of really create an image for him that isn't already there. So George, obviously Beaton took numerous photographs of Elizabeth and the royal family, but it sounds when you talk about her and his relationship, is there one photograph you think that encapsulates what he did best and shows her that you think is the best portrait of her in terms of what we've been talking about? I think the portrait that Beaton took in 1968, I believe it was the last portrait he took of the Queen, is probably emblematic of how we perceive the Queen to this day. It shows the Queen wearing a long naval boat cloak, which means that you can't see any ornamentation. She just stands against this featureless blue backdrop, looking out at the picture, not with pride, not with hauteur, but kind of like a statuesque figure. And I mean that not by her body type. I mean that she's actually like a statue. She's this kind of unchanging, ever-present, enduring presence. There are no jewels, there's no great gowns, there's just her as this, as I say in the piece, the still centre of a loud and rancorous world. And I think that's really emblematic of what Beaton had spent 20 years, 30 years, trying to shape. This image of the Queen as always there, as being this infinite presence amongst a world that is forever changing. Absolutely. Okay, thank you again. It's great, George. I'd encourage everyone to look online and see these photographs, the story, and see more of Beaton's images. It's a sad day for many people around the world, but it's also just an interesting day to look back on Beaton's images, just see how a person became a queen. It's been a pleasure and I love what you guys do on the podcast. So thanks. Thanks, George. On a cinematic note, we have Jamie Kerchick here to talk about a very consequential film called Advise and Consent, directed by Otto Preminger. It's the 60th anniversary of this film that's not only admired as a beacon of filmmaking, but also an important piece of gay literature that was turned into a movie. Jamie's a wonderful contributing writer for us here at Airmail, and he's the author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Washington. Welcome, Jamie. All right, Jamie, you're taking us back this week, way back to the film Advise and Consent. It was released 60 years ago this past July, and this is, according to you, one of the greatest films ever made about American politics. Why does it still hold up? Well, it's about intrigue, and it's about lying, and it's about blackmail. It's about politicians behaving in nasty ways to one another, and I think those are very enduring themes, <laughs> clearly. And it's also just great storytelling. Uh, it's such a dramatic film. The performances are wonderful, particularly from Henry Fonda, who plays a sort of Alger Hiss-type um, man with a, with, with, with a dark past. But the reason I focused on it is because of its role, it's almost um, path-breaking role, in being the first major Hollywood film to explicitly discuss homosexuality, because that was banned beginning in the 1930s. The Motion Picture Association had a list of topics that you could not address on film, like drug use, prostitution, uh, sex, and homosexuality. Uh, and this was the first film to break that taboo. It was based on a best-selling novel by a guy named Alan Drury, who drew on a lot of true events he'd seen in Washington or known about in Washington, right? 
Yeah, Alan Drury was a congressional correspondent for the New York Times, and the novel is about a Secretary of State nominee who is accused of having been a communist in his youth, and the senator who challenges him, the kind of heroic senator, Senator Brig Anderson, who also, as we learn, has a secret from his youth and that he had a gay affair with another soldier during World War II. Uh, what happens in the film is that he's blackmailed over his gay past and he commits suicide in his Senate office. And this is based on a real event. Uh, in 1954, a senator named Lester Hunt from Wyoming, he was a Democrat, he shot himself in his Senate office the first and only time there's ever been a suicide on Capitol Hill. And he did so because his son had been arrested for solicitation in Lafayette Square across the street from the White House. This was the main kind of gay cruising area in Washington, D.C. at this time. And several of Joe McCarthy's allies in the Senate, they were going to expose this, basically ruin this young man's life. And they were trying to get his father, the senator, to not run for re-election. And he was so distraught over this that he shot himself in his office. And this was, this was one of several sort of gay-themed scandals in Washington in the 1950s in Cold War Washington that inspired Drury to write this book. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that that, that detail is not known by, by many peeps suicide within the, on Capitol Hill. But So Otto Preminger becomes the director of the film. As you recount in your story, he pushes hard to depict what's in the book on screen. As you say, there's a little bit of a conflict there. And what is the sort of like political machinations that he has to go through in Hollywood and in, in D.C. in order to, to get the version on screen that he finally does get on screen? Yeah, so Otto Preminger, who's a, one of the great directors of the day, and a real boundary pusher, he had actually released two films earlier in the 1950s without a seal of approval from the Motion Picture Association because uh, they depicted drug use and they depicted, you know, sexual activity and whatnot. So he was the right guy for this movie in a sense, and he really wanted to depict the homosexual aspects on screen. And part of my research, I came across a letter that Drury wrote to Preminger after Preminger bought the rights to his film. And he's really making a strong case for why it's important that the Brig Anderson character, the gay senator, why his homosexuality be retained. And he says that, you know, there are lots of things that a politician can get into trouble for, you know, corruption, he can have a child out of wedlock. Um, but homosexuality is the one thing that could destroy a career, but is basically morally neutral, right? It's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not bad. It's, it's it's not a wrong thing. And this is a pretty, you know, this is a pretty uh, progressive thing to be saying in the 1950s. I mean, homosexuality is illegal in every state in the country. It's considered a, a mental illness by the psychiatric profession. It's a sin in terms of organized religion. And so this is pretty progressive thinking on Drury's part. And Preminger goes to battle with the MPAA. And they go back and forth on the script revisions and whatnot with the head of the production code. He's able to break it. He's able to convince them to let him depict homosexuality on screen. The depiction of homosexuality in the film is quite negative, very different from in the book, which basically argues that the fact that Brig is gay is not a, it's not a negative aspect of his character. Certainly, it's no worse than 
that of his antagonist than the secret that his antagonist has, which is a, a communist past, right? So, you know, having a gay past is sort of unobjectionable, but having a communist past is still very much something that should disqualify someone from, from public office. That's the, that's the point that Drury makes in the book. This film was groundbreaking in so many different ways. What do you think its effects are on, on the generation of filmmakers that we're seeing now who are covering these types of topics? Like, have you, have you heard sort of in the ether a lot of discussion of this film in terms of, of other things that it's influenced or other, you know, series or movies that it's forecasted? That's a good point. I think this film has unfortunately been largely sort of forgotten, except by kind of political junkies and people of a certain generation, because the book was so popular. It was on the bestseller list for over a hundred weeks. And the film, as I say in the piece, really kind of spawned this sort of genre of sort of Cold War political intrigue movies, you know, like in succession, after this movie comes out, you have Failsafe, you have The Manchurian Candidate, you have Seven Days in May, you know, all these movies about sort of Cold War Washington intrigue. And I think the kind of gay aspect of the book and the film has somewhat been forgotten. And that's kind of what I tried to do in my book and and, and, and in the article that appears in Airmail this week, is sort of to make the case that Advise and Consent, the novel, is really groundbreaking and should be viewed as a pretty important work in the history of gay literature. It's not just a book about... Advise and Consent is mostly known for kind of spawning the genre of the Washington novel. I mean, there are lots of writers who've sort of taken up that that mantle after Alan Drury. But it's also important because it's one of the first major works of American fiction to have a gay hero. I mean, that's something that didn't happen in American fiction. Also in American movie. I think filmmakers should become more reacquainted with it because it does illustrate how dramatic the change has been in sort of the way that that gay people have been depicted on screen. He, he, he won the Pulitzer Prize for this book, right? Yeah, yeah. Spent 102 weeks on the bestseller list, as you point out. But I'm also curious, I'm sure many people after listening to your very enlightening discussion here about the, have never seen the film, for everyone who's going to probably come to this movie for the first time, is there anything that you think they should watch for you 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 are you've you, in your story you talk about the great performances by Henry Fonda, Charles Lawton and even a young Betty White but is there a moment or two that you think is just perfect without being a spoiler alert but someone something that someone should be looking out for or a favorite moment you have the scene in the gay bar is really memorable and you know I've talked to older gay people who were alive at the time that this movie came out And they say that that scene or the depiction of homosexuality in the film really sort of dissuaded them from politics. In fact, Barney Frank, you know, the the former congressman from Massachusetts, he said that both the book and the film really dissuaded him from having a political career, at least as an elected official. Right. He 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 went into politics as a young man, but as an advisor, the notion that he could ever become an elected official himself. He was dissuaded from advising consent because basically what the message of the movie is, is that suicide is a better option than being exposed as gay. And that was true for a lot of people. You know, I mean, this was the worst possible secret that you could have in Washington during this period of time uh, was to be gay. It was the most destructive sin Uh, It was worse than being a communist because a communist could become an ex-communist, right? You could come out, so to speak, and renounce 
your communist past and you could denounce your comrades and whatnot. And in fact, some of the most important leaders of the conservative movement in the United States were ex-communists. A gay person couldn't do that. You know, you couldn't come out and say, oh, well, I'm no longer gay anymore. Once you sort of admitted to that or you were exposed, or even if there was a, a, a suggestion or a hint of it, your career was, was over. And I think that is really, that's one of the unfortunate messages of this movie. I mean, I, I love this movie. It's fun. It's, it's great performances. It's very dramatic. It really kind of puts you in Cold War Washington in this period of time. But it's, you do look back on it and you see how terrible things were for gay people at that time. Well, Jamie, thank you so much. A really wonderful story and a great occasion to revisit this film that many people have forgotten about. So it's very useful. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Well, before we go off into the weekend, do you have anything at all you could recommend? Anything? I do. This is a book that is covered this week in our issue and is by a writer whose work I always enjoy and whose talent for spinning riveting reads from true life stories I always envy. His name is Ben McIntyre, and you may know him from such books as Agent Zigzag and Operation Mincemeat, which was made into a film recently by Netflix. His great skill is digging into unknown or forgotten stories of World War II and delivering a page turner every time. And his new book might be his best page turner yet. It's called Prisoners of the Castle, and it's a chronicle of the infamous German prison called Kolditz, which is a medieval pile that today houses actually a youth hostel. And McIntyre details the famous escapes made by allied POWs, but just as importantly gives a vivid picture of everyday life in what became Germany's most elite prison. The soldier prisoners, there were more attempted escapes from Kolditz than any other camp, and he details a lot of them in here. My favorite might be one made by a very elegant French cavalry officer who went down to the exercise yard one day, had an accomplice cup his hands into a stirrup with his back to the fence. He then ran at it, put his foot in the stirrup, vaulted over the fence like a steeplechaser, jumped over the wall, centers a shooting enemy, walked in cycle to the Swiss border on a stolen bicycle, crossed into neutral territory, and then when he was safely back in France, wrote to the commandant asking for his luggage and his wardrobe to be returned, which it was. It is a fascinating story full of resolute warriors and the participants in this drama included communist scientists, women, esthetes, Philistines, aristocrats, and this inside story of Kolditz is a tale of the indomitable spirit. But what I love most about it is it asks a simple question, what would you have done if you were a prisoner there? So it is called Prisoners of the Castle by Ben McIntyre. You can get it in bookstores now. And you, my dear? I'm back. I do have something to recommend. There's been a wonderful new memoir I published this week. It's called A Visible Man, and it's by Edward Enfull, who is currently the editor-in-chief of British Vogue, and he was an editor at W. And this is a wonderful book. Even if you actively dislike fashion, it's still very much worth a read. He talks about his incredible journey from a childhood bedroom in Ghana to the London of the 1990s. He became the youngest ever fashion director of a very cool magazine called ID when he was only 18 years old and his career has skyrocketed ever since. He took over British Vogue several years ago and he has really changed the game in terms of what that magazine means and looks like and who it includes and what it talks about. But this is really a story of a man, first and foremost, a husband, a friend, an icon to so many people and someone who's really lived through some extraordinary times and tells the tale with a lot of soul and grit and... Moxie. I couldn't recommend it more. I think it's a really wonderful memoir for those who like fashion and style or for those who simply want a good tale. So it's called A Visible Man by Edward Enninful, published by Bloomsbury. Enjoy. Wonderful. 
All right. Well, with that, we thank you all so much for joining us. We look forward to hearing from you all soon. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you know where to find us. And you can always email general at airmail.news. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitelli. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. But we'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.